Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. So, Robert, welcome to CTO Confessions. It's great to have you on board, sir. It's great to be here. Brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And who do you work for? Well, I will start by saying that my first name is Robert. One of the interesting aspects of my life is that I'm half Japanese and half Australian. My Japanese name is Masa. My middle name actually technically is Robert. So I grew up in two different cultures and actually three, if you include the United States, which is where I mostly was raised. And so I think one of the, my perspectives is really as a perpetual outsider. In fact, I think my success in business has been because I bring new perspectives to the workplace that I gained through my career as a CTO of startups. And that really is a reflection of my life. I've always, you know, I grew up in three different places, never quite felt comfortable. I think it took a big journey in my life to learn to be comfortable with the various cultures that I'm a part of. So I am currently the the head of engineering, uh, VP of engineering, the head of engineering for the TripAdvisor core brand. TripAdvisor is a uh, billion dollar plus uh, company in the travel space. We provide guidance. We're a pretty well-known brand. I think most of you heard about us. Three companies, uh, TripAdvisor, the, the core business, which is mostly the guidance and reviews and things like that, travel tools. We have Viator, which is our experiences, uh, uh, discovery and booking platform. And then we have the Fork, which is our restaurant services, so similar and somewhat to Open Table in Europe. And so I run all of engineering for the core TripAdvisor brand, and that's around 500 people, a mix of different types of product engineering, IT, other kinds of technical services. Fantastic. And yes, I have heard of TripAdvisor. I've used it many a time. So it's great to have you on. I feel very honored to have some time with you. So thank you for that. And it's a great platform. If you haven't used TripAdvisor, what planet have you been on? But I encourage you to go and have a look if you haven't. So Robert, or Massa, Massa, I'm going to use your real name. So I've been checking you out, your journey. We've had some conversations offline around your journey. What's your journey been like to tech leadership? Because it sounds like a really interesting, with lots of stories to be told within that. It is a very atypical, maybe, uh, if we can use that uh, uh, journey. I uh, I started programming very young in the early days of the sort of the kit computers. In fact, my first computer was an uh, IMSI 8080. The time I was learning it, most of computer science was really punch cards and minis and mainframes. It wasn't as interesting to me. I did a lot of programming work on my own. Typical, I had uh, various computers along the way. I started out, in fact, as a teacher, high school teacher, and even though, you know, it didn't involve programming directly, I also did a kind of a side job. I actually wrote a uh, a grading program for the teacher, the staff in Turbo Pascal. Uh, wow. I remember that. Uh, yes, yeah, I remember that. I'm dating myself. And it really was, I, I spent a couple of years teaching out in California. Then I went to Japan and lived there for five years. It was when I came back, I went to grad school to study instructional technology that I started getting into the startup scene in New York City. Um, I left my job uh, as a, I was running a uh, instructional technology lab at Columbia and we had a, a relationship with the a school called the Dalton School on the Upper East Side. I left with my workers. We had our own, we founded a startup originally called SohoNet for Soho in 
in uh, downtown New York, not the London one that you're familiar with. Mm. We were initially going to be an ISP. I actually had a modem bank. We had these uh, 2856 baud modems in, in Iraq. We had co-location space. We were an early co-located with a, a business partner and pivoted pretty quickly to building CMSs. And we spent you know, five, 10 years building the business. Five of them I was directly involved. I sort of got burned out on it. I, I One of the things we've talked about is knowing when to quit. I didn't want to give up, but uh, mm. it really was pretty hard. And so I ended up uh, leaving the company and hiring the person to replace me and to run the company. And then spent a few years, I call it in the wild, as a fractional CTO, helping non-technical founders build, put together initial teams, grow the teams. And one of those was a company called City Maps, which is a social mapping platform based out of New York City. Interestingly enough, the two founders, Elliot Cohen and Aaron Rudenstein, were actually at the Dalton School at the same time I was running the computer lab there. In fact, they had remembered me and we were introduced through a colleague of mine, Dan Seltzer in New York. I helped them grow the team. Uh, we ended up growing the team to around 25 or so engineers or a mix of engineers, PMs, so on. Ended up working there full time. And then in 2016, we were required by TripAdvisor. Initially, we were acquired by the product group. And one of the things I like to say is that sometimes the front door isn't always the best place to come in. I definitely don't think I could have gotten a job at TripAdvisor on my credentials, but it turned out I was good at what I was doing. We applied our map tech to TripAdvisor. As often happens, a year, a year and a half, two years later, we ripped it all out, went back to Google, decided it wasn't worth the cost to own our own map tech, which actually was the right decision. In fact, the, the guys, the team were, were happy with it. And then really uh, the past, uh, for the past really th through COVID, and one of the things I brought was my perspective that at the time TripAdvisor was largely based in, uh, with full-time employees in the Northeast of the US, mostly Boston based. And, and I had built teams obviously with engineers in the US, but a lot of engineers overseas, Ukraine in particular, and so I really pushed the company to start expanding its uh, where it found its labor pool from, not just because of cost, which of course is a big issue always, but in fact, because of perspective. And we are a global travel company. We should have engineers who have that, share the perspective of, of a lot of part of the world. In fact, most of our traffic comes from Europe, surprisingly, that not, not the States, even though we made most of our money in the States. So I, uh, I worked with the, the CTO at the time, Sugata, who was not my boss at the time, but he you know, saw the, the value in what I was doing. In fact, we had a big trip to Moldova, to uh, Romania, Moldova, and uh, that was in February of 2020, uh, which I'm sure you'll remember. Yeah. And we were sitting getting a presentation from one of our teams over there, and he sort of passed me his phone, and, and the phone said that our flight back home, or back to Lisbon, which was the last stop, was canceled because there was a COVID outbreak in Austria. And that was, I don't know if you remember, but Innsbruck was one of the big hotspots because of a big ski area in wintertime. Right. So he's like, look, we, 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 I was, by the way, uh, there were three other VPs that were supposed to be, or three VPs that were supposed to join us in the trip. They all dropped out because of COVID. I was like, no, I got to make this trip. I thought it was really important to my career and to the company. And so, and Sagata was, was kind enough to stick it out. And, but we said, okay, look, now, now we're pushing it. So we flew straight home to Boston. It was something like out of a zombie movie. All the people were having their boxes there. The office was a, was a, you know, this is an office that was packed. We, Hold, mm. The building in, in Needham, Massachusetts holds a thousand people, wow. six floors. It's usually full. We would have to scramble to find seats. And then within three days, I stayed three days working out of the office. It was, it was a, a you know, graveyard, a ghost town. Mm. And so uh, went home. In fact, uh, we, I had just been, uh, my girlfriend had been building a house. We'd been thinking about moving it together, but it was going to be after the kids graduated, but like, okay, well, I'm not going to go back to New York city now. And, and, uh, 
have my girls live in, in the, you know, in the apartment with everything that's going on. So we ended up moving out to this little bucolic little town just north of the city called Hastings and Hudson. Mm-hmm. And uh, really since then, you know, obviously the pandemic was very tough, tough on the travel business. We ended up letting a number of people go. I think almost 40% of our workforce at the time and a number of other people left. It was just a t- tough time for travel in general. But I, I, you know, loved what I did. I love the company. I love the brand. I love the people I work with. I stuck it out. And really, I think ever since then, I think to, since 2020, my my career has been on a pretty uh, dramatic arc. I started out, as I said, doing various kinds of uh, operational things and, and ran a couple of small engineering teams. But within a year, I'd been running sort of all product engineering, expanded. And at this point, uh, my former boss, who I traveled with, uh, left to do his next thing in March. Uh, I took over and now I'm running all of engineering for the core TripAdvisor brand. So that's the, that's a kind of a crazy, really a three-year arc since uh, the pandemic started. One of the things I want to just come back to, which you mentioned a second ago, and I found this really interesting, is that sometimes the front door is not always the best way in. Right. You want to speak a bit more to that? I sure can. So, you know, I am, my own career has, I think, has not been a very typical one. And And when I hired for the startups I work with, I was always very careful to try to look beyond credentials and look beyond code. Of course, code is very, very important. And one of the things I noticed about TripAdvisor is that they had a very conservative hiring style, very rigorous. I mean, we we had some excellent engineers and, and we built some amazing things. But one of the things I noticed is that there was a propensity at the company to really lead with engineering to solve problems. And I think some cases there's no choice, right? You're, you're trying to, we have an incredible ops team that supports requests, hundreds of thousands of requests a second. You know, we still have hundreds of millions of uh, monthly active users. And you, know, you, can't, you can't solve problems like that without some amazing engineering. However, if your perspective is primarily to solve problems with engineering, I think you'll miss out on the opportunities when in fact, other people, other companies have actually solved that problem better. And it's actually better financial business choice to apply technologies that are solved. Take, you, don't, you don't try to reinvent solve problems, as I said. And so, I really tried to push the team to start to look at different options for hiring. And I think myself, I couldn't ever apply to without the, you know, the credentials of having been at a big company and a big sort of engineering tech firm and, you know, sort of dotting the the I's and crossing the T's, I would never have been able to apply for a job like this and get it or even being referred to it. Uh, It turned out that I'm actually quite good at it. Uh, Mm. I think I've I've gotten a lot of validation and I have a good relationship with with my, my peers and the leadership team and with my CEO. But it really took the crucible, as we say, to to sort of show that actually that my approach was able to solve problems that the company really needed. And I think that's a good lesson for people in their career that, you know, it's important to plan your career and to make choices and that sort of keep your eye on where you're going. But it's also important really to to get the opportunity to do things and just just doing them and trying to apply your approach to doing them may be, in fact, a better way of showing that you're capable of doing something than formally, you know, going out and say, hey, I want to do this and this is how I'm going to do it. And it turned mm-hmm. out actually interestingly enough that I handled operations for the company for a number of years for engineering operations and and my relationships with finance and other parts of the leadership with uh, the office team and, and so on were really the key aspects of me sort of developing the, uh, the credibility among the other leaders, the non-engineering leaders to to get the support I needed in order to get this job. And I think right. that's, that's, I think, an important lesson is that, you know, technical expertise and even sort of pure management expertise isn't enough. You have, it's everything, especially a large public corporation or a small public corporation, but a large company 
really lives on relationships. The reason why companies exist is that the value they get from aggregating talent is, you know, justifies the, the you know, the, the premium on salaries and the infrastructure and all these other things, because at the end of the day, obviously your margins are good. And I think key to that is it's about relationships. Everything I do in the company is done with other people. Now, some mm -hmm. of it, a lot of it is, you know, done with my directs and my, my team and, you know, the, the message being passed down and being, being consistent with the messaging and our approach and our strategy and all those things. But there's just as much that's involved with my peers who are not in engineering. I have to spend a lot of time explaining to them. I have to be transparent. In fact, one of the big things that I think I did here, uh, or I, I did here that I think was uh, instrumental in, in my in my credibility was really make the engineering budgets transparent. I think there was a, a number of years where a lot of engineering leaders didn't really try to explain why they were spending this on this and this many people on this, or even publish like, hey, how many people are on this, these kind of things? It was kind of, well, no, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. And I think there are some times when, you know, I'm not going to try to explain the ins and outs of, you know, one type of stack versus another to, to my peers. But I think it is very important that an engineering leader is able to make his peers feel very comfortable with the investment in resources and what those resources are being tasked to solve, what kind of problems are being tasked to solve, even if they're purely technical problems. And, and I think uh, that, you know, we're in an era now where Choices are about, right? You have consulting companies that will come in and promise the world and do everything for you. You have you know, turnkey SaaS solutions. You have, you know, software licenses. Engineering is one piece of that, but knowing when to do it is really, I think, the most important challenge for any technical leader. And so, the key to that is really uh, buy-in from your from your executive team. And so, the, I was willing, and I, I felt like that was just a natural job of an engineering leader to make that transparent. But it turns out it's not always the case. And I think. My ability to make that and to to provide those reports and and to give them access to the various other leaders was key to their trust in me to to manage our you know our our substantial engineering budget. Fantastic. What I'm hearing is is that there's a a raising of awareness of actually what's going on in your tech world, so it's communicating yeah. that to the wider organisation. Yeah, I was going to say I, I actually don't think there's any. At some point, you can sort of make the call to say, okay, I, I've explained them as much as it makes sense, but there's no discussion you shouldn't be willing to have. You can never you talk to your CEO and say, no, I, I just can't explain to you. You have to maybe be willing to make the effort to try to simplify it to the degree or create the analogies or whatever model you're using to explain it so he feels comfortable with those decisions. Because at the end of the day, it's really his job on the line you know, to, to sort of justify to either the board or the shareholders, why we are making different kinds of investment. And it's actually really important for us right now because the TripAdvisor right now is in the middle of a major restructuring of the of the company. We are leaning back into our, our roots as a guidance company. We have a new uh, a chief product officer, Sanjay Rahman from Airbnb. Great, great, brilliant mm -hmm. uh, product uh, manager or, or director leader. And so we don't have the liberty of just, you know, blowing out our margins and spending it all on this strategy work. We have to be very careful about picking and choosing what we have to do. We still have a lot of legacy tech that has to be taken care of. And so those choices are things that we decide. We make those trade-offs every day. In fact, my entire career running this has really been a, a question of trade-offs and controlling costs. And so the key, the, the only really good weapon in, and maybe weapon's not the right word, but the good weapon in, 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 getting your point across is really transparency and explanation. And if, you, if you're not willing to commit to doing that, I think you'll have a very hard time with uh, non-technical peers. Yeah. That's great. That's a, that's a real gem. I think you've just shared there. 
So Massa, I also want to touch on your journey working from small companies to, to the larger one that you're with now. I can imagine that you've developed some pretty interesting scars and lessons learned. And, and I bet there's a lot of tech leaders out there listening to this as well, because we, we had a funny conversation offline about being turned away and, you know, get your scars before you kind of do this. Anything that you'd like to kind of share with us around some of the scars, that would be really good. Yeah, so I'll say two things. One, one is uh, I'm not a young uh, spring chicken anymore, but one thing I don't ever quit on is I, I'm pretty dedicated to going to the gym, lifting heavy and, and doing other kinds of exercise. I think staying healthy is a really important thing. Uh, to to sort of manage your the stress and and everything else that's going on mm. and that also comes from a time when I was not doing that and in fact I had gotten pretty unhealthy and a lot of that was due to this crazy stress of building my own startup so this was my first startup that I uh, tech startup we raised a few million dollars from some investors uh, angels and friends and family it was the most money I'd ever managed in my entire life at that point. It didn't seem, seem like a huge amount now, but at that time it was massive. Mm. We had a, a startup in, in downtown. This was the original Soho Net, which became Runtime Technologies. We built a, a CMS, which was used by Columbia University, a number of other uh, their departments, the business school, the law school. Good, a lot of cool ideas, cool tech. I wrote, I think, half the thing. Java uh, started out with Cold Fusion, ended up switching to Java. But you know the, the the problems of that business were not technical, and and I think that's the that's a, the most important lesson that I didn't understand at the time. That if you were going to build a product that needs to survive with large scale marketing, it's got to be about sales and fit into the environment. And in fact, with CMS at the time, it was a kind of a new. Obviously, these days, you know, we have you know WordPress and all the, the headless things going on right now. And, these other corporate uh, CMSs, but that time, none of that existed at the time. And so we were really foolish to think that just simply through our own efforts and local networking, and we, we, we had good sales and we were able to support ourselves as a company, but it wasn't enough to make the business a success. But the hardest thing about a business actually is not failure. The hardest phase of a business is when you succeed enough that you're not forced to quit but not enough that it's worth your effort, right? These are years of your life that you're putting into something. And if the payoff isn't there, you have to be mature enough to say, okay, we gave it a good go, but we can't see a way. And so it's time to try to pivot. And that, you know, at that time, it, every there are so many different things going on. We went through the initial tech wave, the second tech wave, and in a lot of ways we could have pivoted, but I was, I had two things. One is I'm a bit stubborn. I don't like to let go of things. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> Two, I, I really, I really felt that that failure was a reflection on me that I had failed, not the company had failed, and they're very, very different things. And I think a lot of founders aren't able to sort of separate the difference between the company failing and their them failing. And even if nothing they did was wrong, yes, most businesses will fail, and that's a very hard lesson to get. In fact, I had a conversation with uh, one of my tech uh, non-technical founders who had had a business and basically most of the businesses fail because they run out of capital. And that's, you know, she had done everything she needed to and had a cool product. It was a lighting management uh, uh, framework and it was designed to use by hotels. And, and we'd actually pivoted and ended up uh, building it on, uh, on Android TV devices, cool concept, but just ran out of money. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and just has, she didn't have the ability to raise more. And so, we talked about maybe even doing a little speaking gig to just to tell, explain to founders because there's a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, and there's just two sides of it. One is all the great stuff that happened. I remember sort of when we raised the money and the parties and the celebrations and the hard work and growing. And then the flip side is realizing, okay, all that stuff we did is not going to turn into a successful exit, mm -hmm. right? It's bringing revenue in, but re revenue is not an exit. It's in fact, delaying the inevitable as a startup 
you always have to be thinking, what's my exit? And if you don't think that, then you're losing sight of the reason why you have a startup, not a thriving business. Yes. And so I, I told you the story. I would spend uh, one or two nights every week staring at my, I had a beautiful apartment overlooking the Hudson River at, at the George Washington, where the George Washington Bridge is. And it was uh, Hudson River is a dark, powerful river. And, and at night it looks very black. And I, you know, I never, again, I never felt suicidal or anything like that, but I felt very depressed. And the fact is, the, the fact that I was also staying, staying, staying up all night, not really getting anything done and justifying it because I needed to do that to save the business should have been assigned to me that I've lost perspective, really, because nothing I, nothing you do between one in the morning and, and five in the morning, unless you're actually preparing a presentation the next day, which I had done as well, is really helping a business. It's really, it's, you're just trying to a, a deal with your stress. And I wasn't able to recognize that. And one of the things I would remember is that every uh, month or so, we'd see a helicopter and divers out uh, past the bridge. And it was, it was likely because there's somebody who had really taken the way out to deal with the stress, which is not, nothing I ever contemplated. But it was also a signal to me that at some point after seeing this enough, I'm like, okay, I need to make a change. And so that was really when I, I said, look, we have, I have a small team and they're running the business. I need to go find something where I'm not distressed. And I did. And uh, so I, you know, when you talk about scars, going back to the original point, yes. I am, it doesn't show it, but uh, anybody who goes through this tech business is covered in scars. And in fact, I think the two things that I bring to the company without, you know, looking at any program or idea or strategy is I bring the scars, which are important because Nothing we do now compares to the stress of what I went through at that time. And number two is that I am also an outsider and I definitely am not patient with the answer of, well, this is the way we do it. And my question always is, well, why is that why we do things? And I think the thing about coming in the side door, I think when you hire people who you get a good feeling about, mm. you you know, you get the sense that they're they're able to bring something to you, but they don't have this degree on paper. They didn't go to the right school, they didn't go to the right company, work at the right company, but you 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 get a sense. It's always worth giving a, taking a chance on them if, it, if it's not too much of a risk because that different perspective, I think, can make or break a company. And a lot of times companies get sort of so insular that they lose sight of what's going on in the rest of the world. And especially with the Internet, the entire business now is a massive ecosystem and you cannot do it on your own. It doesn't. Yes. It, you will spend too much money. You will not hire engineers because no engineer wants to come in and learn a proprietary framework. Yeah. There's just too many options out there. And so yeah. I think uh, those are the perspectives and the scars that, that uh, I think I bring with me to my job now. Thank you for sharing that myself. It is a tough topic you to cover there, but it's a real one. And speaking personally myself, and thank you for sharing your story. This is real stuff and this happens in the space. And, and, and I think it shines a beautiful light on look after ourselves and, and make those decisions that get the best out of us. And also the fact is that sometimes we do lose the perspective and, and it's not only having an impact on us, obviously, but it's yeah. also having an impact on the people around us. So Masa, I've got a question now, putting the spotlight on you as a leader. Okay. As you mentioned, you've got the scars, you've been through various kind of sizes of companies. What's your style of leadership now? What's it morphed into? What works for you and you'd like to share with your tech leader audience? That's a great question. So I still like, I, I, I have been told by, we have a pool of uh, VAs and at one point I think I was told, you're doing too much. <laughs> Let other people do the work for you. In fact, actually, I had a great coach who helped me out and he, he told me the story of the do-nothing manager. And of course, that sounds negative, but I think the lesson there is that your time is, in my organization, my time is, by definition, the most valuable. And it's not a, it's not a reflection on me as a person, it's a reflection of how I should be spending my time. So I think I do like to stay in touch with what's going on. I stay, I connect to all the Slack channels. I'm a very fast reader. I process 
more Slack messages a day than I'm, I'm comfortable admitting. <laughs> but I do like to stay in touch with what's going on. And at the same time, I'm learning to act through my team. And I have a great team. I have great directs. I have a great leadership team. And I, I'm really enjoying sort of helping them grow and learn and develop and sort of pushing them in the directions where, I mean, I think, look, we, we, if we are doing our company a disservice if we are not creating a culture where the moment I leave that somebody can't step in and take over my shoes or, or that when, you know, the people who are my age retire, there's a new generation of leaders willing to come in. And so I'd say that my style is I am an org builder. I like building orgs. I like fitting the org to the challenge. And, and one of the reasons I spend a lot of time spreadsheets and, and finance likes working with me, I believe, is I'm a big sort of process and details person. And it doesn't mean I have to do it myself. I now I sort of recruited one of my directors who's running our engineering uh, operations. And so all that work is exposing how we operate on a pretty granular level so I can get involved with that, but I don't have to do it myself. I also say that I, again, I like to meet the people I work with. I'm a very, you know, if it's not technology, it's also the people. I'll tell you one little thing that I've done for the past year that's made a huge difference. And I do it all myself. This is the one thing I, I pulled on to help, held on to myself is which uh, is that I put a, a newsletter out. It comes out every once, roughly once a month and I get updates. And now the updates are generated by the team and we, we push that out, but I do edit it. I compile it. I try to add a little bit of, of bad humor to it. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but the, the thing is that at the end of every one of the night, it's probably three or four hours of work once a month, which is not a huge commitment. But at the end of that, I know exactly what's going on. And, and, and not to the point of saying, oh yeah, this is dollars and then we're, you know, we're spending too much time doing one thing, but I know the scope of the work that we're doing. And that's, that's really important because I think every CTO should be comfortable if, if he's asked a question in any meeting without prep about, hey, what's this? They should at least be able to do some kind of approximation and 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 that kind of touch uh, with the people and and with their asked a question about a person generally you know unless they're an se a new hire se one they should know who they are and uh, you know 500 people is a lot and i can't say that i know every person but i am i am actually trying to make an effort to uh, when i when i took over the consumer engineering piece i think the org at that point was around 120 or so wow. and i did make an effort to to meet, have one-on-one -on -one with every person in the org. And I think I got about halfway through before they promoted me again. And then I had to start from scratch. Right. So I, I, but I think being comfortable with the projects and the people is, is the other part that's very important for any CTO. Right. Excellent. I get the feeling that you really kind of care about people. So trying to know all that 500 must be mind boggling because you must have a desire. Well, I would like to know them all, but. You can't. And I, I think you sort of rely on your managers to, to push the ones I'd be lying if I said that everyone is equally important, right? There are, there are some who, you know, usually uh, you, the rule of threes has been a general rule that works, that there's a, the top performers that people really need to pay attention to, the ones that have potential that may not have written it, uh, reached it yet. And they're, they're ones that are, are definitely just punching the clock, which again, uh, I, I've always had a philosophy that, you know, you say they're the A, B, and C players and, and that maybe seem a little bit crass and, and, and it's not always clear exactly why they are the way they are, and you want to try to save everybody. But I think one of the things I've learned is that you want to keep the Cs as minimal as possible, right? And and there may be reasons why they are doing what they're doing. Not every job is fun and sexy, and you have to understand that. And and so sometimes, you know, if you there's a job that just needs, you know, somebody taking care of something, and it's, it is fairly rote, but that's the way it is right now, then you got to find a way to staff it. And sometimes you you do that by actually using agencies, talent agencies, and and so on. Uh, but I always had the philosophy that you want the best A players, but a company is built on the B players. And the reason it is because 
the A players, the, the top engineering talent that you have in a company, the best managers are always going to be a minority. You just can't, it just, there's too much competition. We had a period of time two years ago when the amount of venture money that was going into startups was absolutely insane. Mm. And of course the fangs responded by throwing their money against uh, new hires. And we just couldn't hold on to people. It was just a crazy, we lost an entire division of our team to a new startup. And they were being basically sight unseen because one of our uh, VPs had gone to work there. And, and so they, they knew the people and they didn't have to, you know, they didn't have to interview them. They said, okay, here's a contract. You want to come work, work, work for us? And uh, wow. it was an awful t time. It was every week. And one of my managers, uh, my top leader, Adam came and was saying, oh, we just lost this other person. And it was really, I actually, the funny thing is actually, that's, it's not a new thing. I remember my first startup days, that was the same kind of thing. You know, you just worried that somebody comes into you, they're going to leave. And so, <laughs> point is, my point is that you can't guarantee that that's not going to happen and and you want to do the best to create a good culture and you sort of value the people that are working but even if they are not the best you want to try to give them the opportunity to become the best and i think if they're willing to do that in my mind then they're worth saving if the ones who aren't willing to do that fine that's that's their choice and not ever look i'm not the i'm not foolish enough to think that work is all for everybody. Everybody has their choices and they have different times of their life and they have children and, and other kinds of interests. And that's fine. I have don't hold anything against anybody for, for having different priorities. But mm. for building a company, I need to know, first of all, who are the people who are the top people, but also the people who are interested in getting to the top and figuring out the best ways to help them grow to that point. And I think that is a big part of my job. And you're right, making sure that these people feel as though they, they can be their fullest potential. And I guess that takes quite a lot of effort to uh, by the managers, by yourself, by the infrastructure the company has to make sure that you are allowing them to be their best. We're in an interesting time where in the past, a lot of that was done in person. That was the, that's the water cooler talk. That's the informal presentation. That's tapping somebody on the shoulder and say, what's going on? What are you doing? And that's gone, right? We have our, our, our huge headquarters. Now uh, we get a few dozen people in it on a, on a day that we had a pretty big migration of a lot of our talent to different parts of the world. People are making different kinds of choices. The pandemic really have changed habits. And I think we are not, in my mind, I think, you know, I know that big companies are trying to push the in-office culture, but, you know, look, we have our, our CPO is in, in the Bay Area. Our head of data is in Seattle. Our chief marketing officer is in Australia. I think there's no choice for us. There's no chance for us to build that again. We're not, we are no longer a Northeast U.S. company. We are a global company with time zones from India to the West Coast of the U.S. And so one of the things I realized is that the key to surviving and to building culture is about rituals. And mm -hmm. in the old days, rituals sort of presented themselves because everybody knew how to behave in an office. They knew what, you know, they would have lunch, you'd hang out with your colleagues at lunch. Again, you have these various kinds of things. In the era of remote work and, and part-time in-person work, you have to build the cultures yourself. So I actually spend a lot of time talking with our head of facilities, uh, Matt Gabry, who's who's a really brilliant guy, some some great ideas, and we are trying to come up with some ways of really interesting alternate style of, of workplaces. He has an idea of things that we call clubs and hubs and other kinds of things where people can come in. But the flip side of that is we need to create rituals around meeting in person so that it's not just accidental, right? So, I mean, I'll give you one good example, right? All the teams will have on-sites in various points. We have a great headquarters. People do come in. Sometimes we fill it to the capacity it has right now for special meetings, like town halls, things like that. But in my mind, 
it's not just doing that, but it's also coordinating those things so they tend to overlap. So if there is a meeting of product managers, engineers love being working with PMs. It's kind of a truism, right? I've, I've sort of pushed engineers to say, well, you don't need a PM, but the fact is they like having PMs and it's a different style of thought. And so that that synergy is hugely important to the productivity and the create the quality of engineering. So in my mind, I think we should think about, okay, well, we have PMs meeting for their thing. Let's have a synchronous meeting of engineers about their things. And if there's a overlap and we can do, you know, happy hours where they get the chance to do serendipitous interaction, that's, that's a ritual, right? Yes. And, and another one is things like, uh, you know, the demos are very, very important. I will also run a demo in addition to the newsletter and we start to do a regular cadence of virtual town halls. And so I think all those things together are the key to making a successful distributed online company work as a culture. And I think we have a lot of work to do to rebuild culture, which we lost during the pandemic. I totally agree. And I think this is a really important thing is a lot of tech leaders are possibly struggling and challenged by this because you are losing even things like the whiteboard, getting the pen and, and being yep. able to brainstorm and have a laugh around ideas or, or had disagreements. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned that you do have these town halls where you try to create these rituals. But what about the remote remote teams? Yeah, so that's a great question. Two things. One is to the extent that we have the budget for it. We have a team in Croatia, one of our top teams we've really cultivated. We actually acquired a company and we set up an office there. They're, they're largely doing a lot of our native our app work and they're in split Croatia. We quickly realized that we kept getting consistently really strong people. It's really, I think, two things. One is we try to get the, their top people coming to visit us. We try to go over there. And I think I am also, again, at the end of the day, it is all about budget. So I am working with the CFO and the leadership team to do an allocation of budget or even to sort of replace some of the facilities costs with travel so that, you know, as much as we want to say that these online rituals will build culture, nothing builds culture like sitting down in person and sharing a cup of tea or a drink with, with somebody you work with. And I really spent, you know, the past three, once travel was available to us in in the States, I, I that first thing I did was went to Europe. And then I've also been out to our West Coast to Ottawa. We have an, a great team in Ottawa. And so I'm a big believer in in trying to pull people together in person as well for purposes. I, I think we, you know, activity-based work is a big thing. We're not saying to, to our team, come into the office two or three days a week because that's a number we're checking off the box. We're saying, come because there's a purpose to come and, and you will get value out of it. The company will get value out of it and we will try to figure out a way to budget and to, to make that work from a financial perspective. Great topic. And another big topic I'd love to kind of carry on with. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So we're coming towards the closing arc of the podcast. Okay. And I've got some nice warm questions <laughs> for you. So you've gone and given some great advice for aspiring tech leaders out there already. I mean, is there anything else that you'd like to offer? You know, I, I'd say the three things. I would say, look, to, I, I would never say to any engineering leader, you know, don't pay attention to the technology. It's You have to be conversant in everything, but you don't have to be the best. You're going to have people on your team who are the best, and that's fine. You don't always have to know the most, but the, really the things you, you need to focus on as a CTO, number one, the people, right? That's your job is to build an org. So people, org building, and whatever you can do to serve this body of people that are, that's often the biggest, you know, it's certainly the biggest cost center uh, in our company, even though obviously that some of those costs are directly tied to revenue. So that's one is really being comfortable with people. You're, you're building an org. You have to be comfortable with the mechanics of an org. Team structure, hugely important. The, the leadership talents at every level of team size really change and they evolve. And, you know, for me, it's really how much you need to delegate everything. If you're not 
thinking delegation, you're not doing your job. Everything is about delegation. There's only a few things that you absolutely have to do and a few things you need, you want to do, but everything else you need to delegate. So delegation, people, or building is number one. Number two, I'd say is really about budget and money. Again, you, you can't underestimate the fact is that, uh, you know, engineers are hugely expensive in the States. It's big talent. You're spending dollars against a problem. You have to understand what the equation is of those dollars. Is it a dollar that makes sense? You, you shouldn't, you know, it's not just the, the cost of the engineers to build it. What is it going to cost to document it, to maintain it? To, you know, what's the entire life cycle? You always have to be thinking in terms of in terms of total life cycle cost of any piece of code in general, unless it's, you know, some kind of Lambda function that get, you, gets a throwaway, mm. uh, is, is a baby, right? You nurture it, you grow it, and you have, to, you have to raise it, and you have to take care of it. And so all those have costs associated with that, and companies aren't always good about long-term maintenance of those things. And if you can't afford to do that, it's fine. You tell the company, no, we don't have to. We don't, not, we don't have the patience to do that. It's a solved problem. Here's the dollar cost of a good equivalent that's a leader in the marketplace. And and one of the, uh, a little quick story is that um, with the former CTO uh, a few years ago, before my boss who left, um, uh, we were having a meeting about, uh, about content management systems, uh, CMSs. And I had gone through our, our internal documentation system. And I noticed a lot of people building CMSs and I, and I, I come from that and I, I was surprised that why would you build a CMS in this day and age? And this was several years ago. And I, I went to him, I said, and I was saying, look, look, we need to get a rein on what engineers, and this is what I sort of meant by engineer led thinking that of course an engineer might think, oh yeah, if you, you know, I can build this, a few people, it's no problem, but they're not thinking about the long-term budget impacts of what they're doing. And so I, I made a bet with him. I said, I bet if I go through our documentation in a half an hour, or sorry, in an hour, I'll find five examples of fully-fledged CMSs that people are trying to build. And he's like, no, they're not doing that. Go ahead. In, <laughs> in a half an hour, I came back with not quite 10, but seven or eight. And so, wow. you know, that is, as a CTO, you really need to understand the trade-offs of building versus buying versus open source, all those things. It's a very complicated space and you have to spend, invest a lot of time in meeting vendors, working with vendors. Vendor relationships are huge. Mm. Uh, we, in fact, are talking to a couple of search vendors right now and and you need to rely on their exp expertise because they are in the space that's not strategically important to you, but you're going to rely on their technology. And then the last thing I think is really about these peer relationships, right? You you are, until you get to be a, a director, you're mostly working with engineers, right? But the moment you, you hit that director level, it's not, it's your business product, your GM partners, your, your product partners, your, your marketing partners. And so developing those peer relationships is hugely important. You should have a cadre of people at, at your level that you feel you can trust, that you can you can throw ideas off of. And a lot of times just a, a quick conversation will save hours of formal presentation. You know, I generally like to go into every meeting with uh, a sense of that I know where the arguments are and that I, I have made my case to the people individually before I actually try to present it. And then mm -hmm. presentation is a formality and that's maybe a Japanese style, but uh, I really don't think that, you know, arguing in public is a, is a, is a productive thing. I mean, you know, passion discussion is good, but you get to that point by building trust. And I genuinely do love the coworkers I work with. I enjoy their interaction. I love challenging them. I love explaining the ideas, the technology to them so that they can make informed decisions and also push back against me. And, and I think that's a skill that's very, very important for any aspiring technology leader to, to develop. Great advice. Loads of gems in there. And I've got a really fun question for you now. Okay. Hopefully the rest of it's been fun as well. But this one here, I'm going to offer you a wish from the tech genie. I'm going to pretend to be the tech genie. What would you wish for? For your industry, for your leadership, for engineering in general, maybe? Yeah, yeah. 
as I said, I'm a big traveler. I've grown up in three cultures. I've spent my entire life going to Australia, going to Japan. As an adult, I traveled all over the world. I really, I, one of the reasons I love working for TripAdvisor is that I think it provides a service that that is unique and important and valuable. And I would love us to be at the center of the relationship between travelers and the and the providers and the restaurants, the hotels, the experiences. It is a you know great place, and I believe travel is what connects the world and and is a force for good. And so, you know, being able to do all these things and and make a living and to be a force for good is is pretty uh, pretty amazing. And so, I think that that patience and fortitude to turn our company back into that trusted travel advisor is what I would hope for. Brilliant, great wish, great wish. And as a final full stop to the podcast, what's yeah. your final key takeaway for our tech leader audience out there as a gift as we part company? Yeah, I think the gift is. A tech leader is not about tech. It's about being a leader first. And there are a lot of different ways that is. You have to be good with the tech, but guarantee there are people on my team who are better engineers than I ever will be, understand tech better than I will than I ever will. But I don't think they'll be as good leaders, or at least I hope not. And I think that's the key: is that uh, you need to lead first, and then uh, with a solid foundation in the tech. But it's not about leading with the tech. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of technical leaders. It's easy to grow up in the tech space and. And have a brilliant, you know, career in architecture or design, and 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 sort of take that to it. And those are all important. At some point, you have to let them go, and you have to be good about recruiting the people who will bring that to you mm. as part of their, you know, their role. And you are the one who are recruiting them, keeping them incentivized and motivated, and building the org and and working with the peers. So leadership comes first, and then tech after that. Great note to finish on. Thank you, Massa. Thank you for your time. It's been great having you on CTO Confessions. My pleasure. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Labs services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.